0: Welcome, everyone, to West Hills, and thank you for welcoming me back. Uh, my name is Will Devall, I'm the lead pastor here at West Hills, um, and it is good to be back with you. If you're new, um, I was gone last Sunday. I just returned from our family's annual 12-day uh, vacation in northern Michigan uh, with my wife's mm-hmm. Michigan. woo for <laughs> few Michiganders. Uh, I pretty much uh, divide my days up there into thirds, uh, one third for sleeping, another third for doing crossword puzzles and eating way too much, and uh, swinging on the porch swing, and the last third for playing croquet. And uh, if you're wondering if this is kind of like a Freaky Friday situation where when I cross the state line, I turn into a 90-year-old man, um, <laughs> the answer is no. It's really more of a kind of a reverse Benjamin Button situation, um, where I'm I'm actually a 90 year old man all the time, trapped inside a 34 year old's body. So, um, but it's good to be back. You're welcome that we brought the weather back with us. Um, it's beautiful out there, and so uh, this morning we're going to continue um, in our sort of three part mini series within a series um, that, that Cordell helped. Uh, continue for us last week. Uh, we're studying, as you know, um, this year the Gospel of Mark together as a church, and so we're in this part three now of our three-part mini-series on parables, Jesus's parables in the Gospel of Mark. And so a parable um, is a simple story, often a metaphor or a simile. Uh, kids, that is a, a comparison using like or as Uh, Between two similar things, the kingdom of God is like a pearl, it's like a coin, it's like a mustard seed. It's a simple story that illustrates a spiritual lesson, and so Jesus' parables are really earthly stories with heavenly meanings. And the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, record 35 parables total, but Mark, interestingly, only includes five. And so we began two weeks ago with the parable of the four soils. Um, From Mark chapter 4 and Jesus' exhortation there was that we mind not only the soil of our own hearts and ensure that the seed of God's word finds fertile ground in our own souls to take root, but moreover that we would grow up into fruit-bearing trees in our own right who are faithful to reproduce the good news of Christ into others' hearts as well through our evangelism and our discipleship. And then last Sunday, I stuck Cordell with three parables to unpack for you, the parables of the lamp, the harvest, and the mustard seed, all of which, again, attested to Jesus' heart for evangelism, for sharing, for spreading this good news of the kingdom of God, the active and living reign and rule of God, our sovereign Savior and King, who is now in our midst in a different way in the person of Jesus. The kingdom of God has come near, Jesus says in Mark 1.15. It is at hand, it is upon you, it's right under your noses because I, Jesus, am your long-awaited king. But people need to know about it. They've got to hear this good news that I can save them from their sins and offer them new, eternal life with me. Reconciliation with God the Father, if they will be... Repent and turn to me for salvation. And so Jesus tells these parables about letting your lamp shine, your light, your faith, your witness shine before others. Don't hide it under a basket, he says. He tells the parable of the harvest, where we believers are simply called to faithfully scatter the seed of the gospel and then trust God to give the growth. We can even, according to Jesus in the parable, go take a nap. Mark 4, 27, and wake up to discover that the seed has sprouted and we know not how because God gives the growth. It's in the very nature of good seed to grow. and The gospel is the best seed of all. God desires that none should perish but that all should reach repentance. But how are they to believe in whom they have not heard? And so we have to sow. We have to be faithful to sow and evangelize and then trust God to work that good seed into the soil of people's hearts. And lastly, you saw last week the parable of the mustard seed, which teaches us not to get discouraged when we don't see instantaneous results from our evangelism. Because the moment it's sown, a mustard seed is tiny. But man, when it blossoms, when it blooms, and sometimes I wonder how much Our failure uh, as a church in 21st century America to be faithful to evangelize is due to our results-based approach to ministry. And let's be honest, it can be easy to get discouraged when you share your faith with someone. You kind of put yourself out there and you feel like you're met with nothing but rejection, right? If our evangelism is ultimately motivated by results, then we will either get discouraged and quit sharing our faith altogether, or we will become one of those churches that genetically modifies the seed of the gospel such that it becomes easier to sprout. The gospel will become all about what Jesus can do for you, how he can help you live your best life now. Because that kind of gospel takes quick a lot more easily in people's hearts. We might get instantaneous results. We'll be like, we'll be on the cover of those magazines that we get in the church office down here. The fastest growing churches in America, Oasis Church baptizes three hundred and eighty-seven in a single Sunday. I mean, we could be like that. We might contrast that approach to ministry with the one taken by George Whitfield, the famous evangelist and leader of the first Great Awakening in the mid-eighteenth century, who when Whitfield was asked after his revival sermons and his altar calls where hundreds, thousands would come forward, Brother Whitfield, how many souls were saved this evening? How many pledge cards? He would reply, I guess we'll wait a few years and find out. Like Whitfield, the aim of our evangelism isn't merely sprouting seeds, but ultimately fruit-bearing trees So we don't cheapen and pervert the gospel to make it easier to accept. So we can pad our baptism stats. We can fill our church coffers. But neither do we despair when we don't see instantaneous results because we know that ours is a mustard seed kind of faith. And all of that leads us to this morning in our fifth and final parable from Mark chapter 12, verses 1 through 12. And this one is somewhat unique. Uh, This parable is not about evangelism. Uh, It's the only parable found outside of chapter 4 in Mark's gospel, and it's probably the most PG-13 of all of Jesus' parables, and I'm aware that we have the kids joining us for Family Sunday this morning. Kids, where are you at? Woo! Woo. You can do better than that. Kids, where are you at? Yay! They're so excited to be in here, man. So excited. Well, I'm excited that you're with us at least. I will try and uh, keep you engaged as best I can, kids. Um, but guess what, kids? The Bible is not a G-rated book. Noah's Ark is not a story about cute animals in a boat. And Jesus of Nazareth wasn't the smiling, Caucasian, hippie, always holding a lamb, surrounded by children that he's often portrayed to be. So kids, if, if you're here and you were like I was when I was your age, and you want to know the real story, like the real Jesus, the real Bible that your parents don't always, you know, not the, not the edited for kids version, you're in luck. So this morning you get the PG-13 parable. And if that's not you, you've Allie's got some cool new kids' bags for you that I know I'm competing against for your attention. But. Uh, Most significantly, this morning's is one of the only parables that isn't intended to convey a general spiritual truth for all who have ears to hear, but rather this parable has a very specific audience and a very specific purpose. And so, let's read it together, and I invite you to stand with me as you're able in respect for God's Word. We're going to be in Mark chapter 12, verses 1 through 12. I'll read it for us. And Jesus began to speak to them in parables, saying, A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it out to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and they killed him. And so with many others, some they beat, some they killed, he had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. And so they left him and went away. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we pray now that you would open our ears to hear, open our eyes to see, open our hearts to receive the seed of your gospel. That it might take root in the soil of our hearts, that we might not be like those who heard this parable in the first century when you first told it so long ago with stopped up ears and scaled over eyes and hardened hearts. Father, would you soften our hearts this morning to receive your word? We want it to take root not shallow roots, we don't just want to be a church that celebrates sprouting seeds that shrivel up and are scorched by the sun, we want to be fruit-bearing trees. So Father, would you cause your word to take root this morning in a way that would bear much fruit for many years to come, for our good and for your glory we pray, amen. You may be seated. Now, uh, before we can determine what this parable means for us today, we need to spend the bulk of this morning trying to understand, decipher what it meant to them back then, Jesus' original first-century audience. And to do that, as Cordell reminded us last week, this all-important interpretive principle that we must Always keep in mind when we study scripture that our forerunners in the faith and the founders of the Reformation called sola scriptura, that is scripture alone. The idea that because scripture is set apart as our only final authoritative source of truth, that when we interpret it, we must start by letting scripture interpret itself. If we have questions about one passage in the Bible, we turn to other passages for help because as Jesus himself said, the scriptures cannot be broken. They are our infallible, unfailing guide. And so if we employ that principle here, I want to point us to three passages in particular to help us interpret this parable. And the first is actually a verse within our passage in Mark 12 itself. Mark informs us in verse 12 that they were seeking to arrest him, Jesus, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them. So right there, we get both the audience as well as the purpose for this parable. Jesus' purpose is to convict them, to condemn those he is addressing. All right, so who is he addressing? Who is he talking to specifically? For that, we need to turn back to chapter 11, because oftentimes... In the Greek, they'll just kind of reuse pronouns to refer to people from chapters before. So we turn back to chapter 11. We hear in verse 27 that Jesus and his disciples, they came again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking into the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. And then they began to question his authority. And that is the context for this parable in the beginning of chapter 12. That is the group who's seeking to arrest him. They are the ones who Jesus told this parable against. They are the wicked tenants, these chief priests, scribes, and elders. Okay, so what about the rest of the parable? Who's the owner, the vineyard, the servants? Let's turn to our second interpretive passage, Isaiah chapter five. Isaiah five, one through seven. where the prophet Isaiah, seven and a half centuries before Jesus, is speaking out against the injustices and the sin that he observes in Jerusalem in his day, and he warns the people of their impending judgment by God at the hands of the invading Babylonians if they will not repent. And here is the metaphor that Isaiah uses... To, to do that, to judge them, see if it sounds familiar. He says, let me sing for my beloved, my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. Sound familiar? And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done for it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedges, and it shall be devoured. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts, it's his vineyard, is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed, for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. And so we discover here, and all throughout the Old Testament, prophets, Jeremiah 12.10, Ezekiel 19.10, and others, that the vineyard is a common metaphor here in verse 7 for the house of Israel, for the men of Judah, for God's chosen people, the nation of Israel. God is the owner of the vineyard. In Israel was his once pleasant planting, but God's people were planted for a purpose. Verse 2, to yield grapes. And what are the grapes? Verse 7, he looked for justice, for righteousness, but instead they produced wild, sour grapes, injustice, bloodshed, sin. And this metaphor from Isaiah 5 would have been very familiar to these well-educated Jewish leaders who Jesus is addressing They would have also known the historical fates of Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and the rest of the prophets. They knew how they ended up. John MacArthur writes, the second century Christian apologist, Justin Martyr, reports that Isaiah was sawn in half with a wooden saw. I told you kids, not PG-13. That's more like R, sawed in half with a wooden saw. Jeremiah was constantly mistreated, falsely accused of treason, thrown into a pit. And according to tradition, stoned to death by the Jews, Ezekiel faced similar hatred and hostility, Amos was forced to flee for his life, Zechariah was rejected, and Micaiah was struck in the face. Had his, his head bashed in like the, the servant in the parable. So the meaning of this parable is crystal clear to these priests and scribes. Jesus is saying that God is the, the vineyard owner, Israel, his people, are the vineyard, and they, the religious leaders... He's addressing are the wicked tenants who were entrusted with taking care of God's people, but instead they have led them astray. And the prophets were the servants who God sent to appeal to the tenants only to be persecuted and ignored. And lastly, they know exactly who Jesus is claiming to be in this parable. God's beloved son in verse six, who was sent so one last appeal to them, who they will soon murder. And indeed, this is the very charge for which they will have him sentenced and crucified just two chapters later in Mark's Gospel. Chapter 14, we hear the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And the high priest tore his garment and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. The final explanatory passage we need to examine this morning is Acts chapter 4, verses 8 through 12, and Peter's commentary on verse 10 of our parable here in Mark. So Jesus shifts metaphors within the passage in verse 10 from a vineyard and wicked tenants to a cornerstone and rejected builders. And he is directly quoting here from Psalm 118. And Peter explains this metaphor in Acts chapter four to the same Jewish leaders, mind you, who put Jesus to death. Annas and Caiaphas, the exact same high priest who put Jesus to death, arrest uh, Peter and John In Acts chapter 4, for healing a paralytic in Jesus' name and preaching about him, and at Peter's own trial for blasphemy, he exclaims, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucify, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well today. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has now become the cornerstone. And there is salvation and no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. See, parables are kind of like jokes. They lose some of their, their punch and their bite if you have to explain them. And so in Mark 12, Jesus, it's like the greatest joke parable teller. He just drops this parable and then just kind of mic drops, you know, and walks away from the scribes and and Pharisees. But y'all know Peter, uh, Peter's not one for subtleties you know, Peter is, is the guy at Jesus' transfiguration, the most supernatural, most awe-inspiring, most dumbfounding moment in all of Jesus' earthly ministry. Peter's the one who just can't help himself. He's too excited. He interrupts and blurts out, hey, Jesus, you want us to like build some tents? And God has to say in his PG way, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. You know, which is another kind of biblical way of saying shut up, Peter. I don't know if kids are allowed to say that, but it's not really church uh, appropriate maybe, but shut up, Peter. Know when to just hold your tongue. But that's Peter. Peter's not one for subtleties, and so he has to explain the punchline of the parable so in Acts 4, that's what he does. He explains it. Jesus was God's beloved son, the cornerstone, the foundational rock on which God's church is built. And then Peter actually fleshes that metaphor out for us even more. In his epistle, 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter describes the church in metaphorical terms as God's temple. He says, We all believers are living stones making up this temple and its cornerstone. Its centerpiece, the foundation around which the whole thing is built is Jesus, whom you, Annas, Caiaphas, you crucified him. Can you imagine preaching that sermon? I told you, Peter's not one for subtleties, and this eventually gets him crucified as well. But I want to spend the rest of our time this morning on this question. What does any of this have to do with you and me today? The interpretation of this passage is actually pretty straightforward. But discerning its meaning and its relevancy for us today, what are you and I supposed to do with this passage? It's a bit trickier. Like, I get it. Jesus is convicting. He's condemning these religious leaders. What do I do with this 2,000 years later? I'm not a Jewish high priest. I think the key for you and I to appreciate the meaning and the relevancy of this text for us today comes in verse 7. Verse 7, Mark tells us, But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him. And the inheritance will be ours. Friends, that's what this parable is really about. That's why they really killed Jesus and this is kind of a big misconception in the church today. We, we attribute all sorts of other motives to the religious leaders who killed Jesus. We've grown up being taught to think that, well, they were sticklers for the law, and Jesus came in and he violated their law. He did things like heal on the Sabbath, and so they killed him. No, that's not, it's not why they killed him. Did you know that the widely accepted oral interpretation of the Jewish law as expressed in the Mishnah and the Talmuds of the first century allowed for exemptions to the Sabbath restrictions on work when a person's health and well-being was at risk? And so all that stuff about the Jewish leaders confronting Jesus for breaking the law, that wasn't really about him breaking the law. According to their own interpretation of the law, he had actually done the right thing in prioritizing people over the law. This wasn't about the law. The fact of the matter was they just didn't like being shown up. They didn't mind healing on the Sabbath per se. They just didn't like Jesus being the one doing it, getting the credit. That undermined their power, their authority in their religious community they had carved out. We've all been taught to think, well, maybe they were just expecting a different kind of Messiah. They were expecting a political Messiah who would come in physical power to overthrow Rome. And here comes Jesus. He's a spiritual Messiah. They just didn't recognize him. Again, there may be some truth in that. But remember, these guys were expert students of the law and the prophets. They knew better than anyone, every single one of the 68 Old Testament prophecies that Jesus of Nazareth fulfilled The problem wasn't that they didn't recognize him. The problem was that they did recognize him and they hated him for it. Reread verse seven of our parable. They said to one another, this is the heir. They recognize him. They know exactly who Jesus is and they hate him. So why did they kill him? They killed him so the inheritance will be ours. They killed Jesus not primarily because he was a lawbreaker, Not primarily because he defied their messianic expectations. No, they killed Jesus because he was a direct threat to their power. Jesus threatened their power. This parable is all about power. How dangerous it is because of our sinful tendency to abuse it. A man planted a vineyard. He's in charge. He's the owner. He has all rightful authority over the vineyard. He puts in all the front end work by himself, and then he generously leases it out to other tenants who didn't do any of the work. He shares with them some of the power and oversight of the vineyard. But when the season for grapes arrives, he sends to collect his share of the profits, and it reminds these tenants that they're not ultimately in charge here. And so, how do they react? They're greedy. They're power hungry. They like being in charge and they hate the notion of being accountable to anyone else. So what do they do? They kill him. So much so that when the owner sends his own son, surely they'll respect my son. He will remind them that this vineyard belongs to me, that I'm a good owner. I'm a kind master. They kill him. The wicked tenants, they see this as the best opportunity of all. If we kill him, We get the inheritance. Jesus poses a direct threat to the power that these Jewish leaders of his day had so come to enjoy in the same way that the Old Testament prophets centuries earlier had posed a threat to their forefathers, the ancient Israelite leaders in that community. Jesus confronts the Pharisees in Matthew 23 and says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets of old, you know, you decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, if we had lived in the days of our forefathers, we would not have taken part with them in the shedding of the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are the sons of those who murdered the prophets. He says, if you think you're not part of the problem, you're part of the problem. You're the same old, greedy, power-hungry, religious leaders that murdered Isaiah and Jeremiah and all the rest. You just happen to have been born in a different generation. There's nothing new under the sun. And friends, the same is still true for you and me today. This This is where it hits home for us. This is the application for today. There is still nothing new under the sun. It is still true that if you and I think that we're not part of the problem, by definition, we are part of the problem. This parable, by definition, is for us. It's about us. If we think that this is just a Jewish problem, like maybe that's the common denominator here. These paranoid Jewish leaders in the Old Testament who were killing the prophets to try and hold on to their power, the Jewish leaders in the New Testament killing Jesus to try and hold on to their power, to, you know, he threatened their power atop the first century religious hierarchy. If we think it's just a Jewish problem, we're wrong. If we think it's just a religious leadership problem, like, yeah, Pastor Will, maybe this parable applies to you. You need to listen to its warnings, but I'm, I'm not a leader in the church. Like, yeah, I mean, I can see how this has played out, not just in Judaism, but in Christianity as well. And in, in, in our church history, with our church leaders, think back to all the corruption of the medieval church that necessitated the Protestant Reformation, the selling of indulgences, as You know, tickets out of purgatory for your lost loved ones, i.e., ways to, to build all those big, beautiful buildings, cathedrals all over Europe. Think of the medieval church, and you had bishops selling positions of leadership in the church, I mean, literally auctioning off the priesthood, the entire medieval mass designed around the idea of keeping people in the dark. The Bible left untranslated in the obsolete Latin language so that people can't read for themselves and understand what the heck's going on. Keeping people in the dark is a great way to consolidate and keep power. But lest you think that this is a Jewish problem, lest you think this is a Roman Catholic problem, I mean, just listen to the sexual abuse scandals, reports coming out of the Southern Baptist Church right now. Lest you think this is a Jewish, a Roman Catholic, a Southern Baptist, a church leadership problem. This, friends, this is a human problem. It's a human problem. The desire to be God for ourselves, the impulse to kill anything that threatens our own power and lordship, control over our own lives. We've got a word for that in Christianity. It's called sin. And it's a human problem. It is the human problem for you, for me, every bit as much as it was for these first century Jewish leaders. Let me ask you this morning, in what ways does Jesus pose a threat to your power, to your control over your own life? What ways does Jesus defy your expectations of what you would like to make him if you could design him in your image instead of the other way around, in what ways does he pose a threat to your control over your own life? Hear the good news this morning, friends. You are a sinner. You are a rebel against the only true sovereign God with all power and all authority and all dominion over all the universe that he created this is his vineyard that he planted you are his pleasant planting. Isaiah 43 7 you were created by him for him for his glory but instead of bearing good fruit and fulfilling your purpose and bringing him glory with this life that he's so generously given you In your sin and in your rejection, your rebellion of his loving lordship over your life, you have brought forth wild, sour grapes. You have sinned, and all have sinned, and all have fallen short of the glory of God. And according to Scripture, that sin, your sin, means that you rightfully deserve death and hell and eternal separation from God. The wages of your sin is death, Romans 6. But, but, this is the good news, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. God sent not just some hired servants, not just some prophets to warn you about your sin and its consequences, no. God sent his only son, his beloved son, Son, not just to warn you, to pay for, to atone for, to die for your sins. To trade his righteousness for your unrighteousness. To make peace between a holy, perfect God and a broken, wretched sinner like you. Because he loves you. He loves you. God so loved the world. God so loved you. You. Kids, listen to me for a minute. I'm almost done. God so loved you. Can you repeat it with me, kids? That he gave his only begotten son. That whoever believes in him should not perish, but what? Inherit eternal life. Will you receive him this morning? Will you receive him this morning? Will you surrender your power and your control over your life and receive him? Receive Jesus as your king. He is worthy. He is good. He is kind. He is loving. And if your hope is built on anything less than Jesus' blood and righteousness, you are building on sinking sand. Christ alone is our cornerstone. Will you build your life around him, the cornerstone? Or, like these religious leaders, will you continue to let your desire to maintain your own power, your own control over your own life, cause you to reject him? He who has ears, let him hear. Let's pray.